Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Kerry Clack, columnist, editorial board. Metro editor, Greg Jefferson. State Representative Trey Martinez-Fisher. And uh, <laughs> as, as you- uh, Jumped right in. You ju- jumped yeah, right you jumped right in, that's good. That's, you're making our job easy here. Yeah. Uh, you don't even have to introduce yeah, yourself. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm usually shy. I think you're part of the podcast team now. So quiet. Um, Representative uh, Trey Martinez-Fisher, he's the uh, the dean of the San Antonio House delegation. He's the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. I think we all know it's been a wild um, legislative session this year. We're into our second special session, and we've got a lot to talk with him about, and we really appreciate you being here with us. Uh, before we get into the, to the legislative stuff, though, uh, I had to ask you about some, some news that broke this morning, which is that um, your longtime colleague, friend, fellow San Antonio Democrat Roland Gutierrez announced that he's running for the U.S. Senate. Um, it looks like it's going to be a primary race between him and Colin Allred, the, the Democratic uh, congressman from uh, Dallas. And the winner will will face Ted Cruz uh, in November 2024. Um, what's your reaction to this? I mean, you probably had, I know you had some idea this was going to happen, but. Yeah, and a little, I had a little idea. Like Roland and I have been friends since 1998. We met as practicing lawyers, baby lawyers at the courthouse. Yeah. And, we cut our teeth taking court appointed cases. You know, like Roland has um, is always been a, a a guy that always goes up uphill. You know, he's always willing to take on serious challenges. And he has a saying that you don't you don't hit the ball if you never swing the bat, right? So I think that listening to his video and, and sort of talking to him a little bit, it, he recognizes that you know Texas is a tough state to crack uh, politically mm. for Democrats. But if we just sit on the sidelines, sit on our hands, there's a 100 percent chance we're going to lose. Uh, and with Roland getting in this race, bringing his narrative, bringing his vision, you know, putting his vision out there, putting Congressman Allred's vision out there. Let's see what Texans want to do. Who do they want to be their their Democratic nominee? And then it's, hey, and then it's mano a mano with Ted Cruz. I mean, you know, somebody that I think not only do a lot of Democrats dislike, but I think there's a good number of Republicans and independents that are probably tired of him as, too, as well. So it'll be an interesting dynamic. But first, you know, folks have to get through the primary. Roland has a, a big state Senate district, but there are a lot of people in Texas who don't know about him yet or are just beginning to find out about him. For those who who you know, really don't know much about him, maybe they've just heard, heard his name or uh, maybe they saw him on, on CNN or MSNBC and, you know, after the Uvalde shooting. What, what do you think is important for people to know about him? You know, there's a there's a real famous mariachi song called uh, El Hijo del Pueblo, like, you know, the, the, the son of the of the people. Right. Uh, and. And that's kind of Roland's story. I mean, he's his father walked across the border uh, and put his kids through St. Paul's and Central Catholic High School selling insurance at the time when you would go door to door, knock on doors and collect premiums. Uh, his mother died before his first birthday. Mm-hmm. He was raised by a stepmother. Uh, he, he'll tell you to this day that he will never eat a papa con huevo taco because that's all his father made him having to feed four boys at home. That was the meal, potato and egg tacos. And so he won't eat one today because he ate those as kids. And, and look, he's, he's humble. He's a humble person. He's a family person. He works really hard. Uh, he's a lawyer, but people don't know that he, he, he moonlights as a one heck of a general contractor. He, he, he builds things. He's worked with people. Uh, he's worked with communities. I think that, uh, the streak that he has, the ability to, to stand by his convictions and his principles. We saw that on city council when, when he would battle, you know, Mayor Hartberger, you know, tooth and nail, then they became good friends and became, you know, business partners and worked together on the council. 
I think what we saw in the Senate that, you know, even though he would even annoy his own Democratic colleagues of just sticking to the message of we need to do something on guns. I mean, he was going to stick to his convictions uh, and and. and you know, and, and that can be a lonely place. I've always said that uh, the lonely, the loneliest place in the Capitol is that voice of dissent, being on that back microphone, challenging the leadership, being, you know, the person on the Senate floor, taking on the lieutenant governor. It's a lonely place sometimes because a lot of that environment is to, you know, you got to get along to go along. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the only, the only thing I'm going to worry about for him is it's a, it's a crazy political environment. Uh, he's got a wonderful family. Two beautiful children, a, a, a fantastic wife, and and obviously this puts a strain on the family. And so I just you know wish him the best and and do everything I can to support him. And and I think uh, you know when he gets out there on the campaign trail, there'll be you know two different folks that you can vote for. Uh, I think you'll see that very clearly. It won't be close. You're going to like one or the other, mm. and, and you're going to select a nominee. Are you going to endorse him? I am. You know, I I, I didn't endorse him this morning, but I think uh, I've endorsed him financially. He's asked me to to help him, and and so I'm going to be one of his early donors to his campaign and and uh, do everything I can. Look, he's from the neighborhood. He's a sure. he's a St. Paul's boy. I'm a St. Luke's boy, right? So I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to overlook that. Right? I'm going to overlook that rivalry. <laughs> uh, but despite that, is uh, you you've got to you've got to help somebody who's willing to step up and. That's one of the biggest challenges in politics right now is everybody's got these great ideas. Very few people want to step up. Everybody wants someone else to do it. Obviously, he's in the arena now. He's in the ring, and we need to get behind him. Yeah. Um, the other big news uh, we learned about this morning is uh, an agreement between uh, House Speaker Dade Phelan and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. I mean, the, this has really been the source of uh, conflict uh, through the, f- the regular session, the, the first special session, which is that they both a- agreed on uh, property tax relief. I think that even the scale of the relief, but you had Dan Patrick um, wanting uh, to include homestead homestead exemption um, along with compression, which is where the, the state buys down some of the, the, the revenue for the, the school district so they can reduce their property tax rates. And Dade Phelan was advocating, and I guess the House passed in the first session, uh, special session, the compression only uh, bill looks like they've, they've agreed to something that's a, a combination. I mean, I, I, in looking at it, and I, I, I'm not sure where the, how the numbers break down exactly compared to what they had been talking about before, but it, just on the surface, it looks to me like this is basically what Dan Patrick wanted. Is that fair to say? You know, it's shaping up that way. I mean, I guess the, the, the proof is in the pudding when we actually get the, the draft language, but, but the deal points that have been released seems to me that, that Dan Patrick has been talking about homestead exemption, homestead exemption, homestead exemption. You see a lot of that. That's why it's a hundred thousand, which is what he wanted, which is what he wanted. So look, I mean, look, a lot of this is, is what I'd call drama because <laughs> in the, in the regular session, we could have passed this. Uh, in fact, uh, Democrats had a plan that did a homestead exemption and a rate compression, uh, and an appraisal cap that uh, was nine votes shy of, of of getting adopted in the House. And so it's not like all of a sudden people woke up and said, hey, we've we got this fantastic solution. The solution's always been there. What we have is ego. What we have is, you know, somebody wants to be the big dog in this and, and uh, you know, looks from these deal points that Dan Patrick got what he wanted. I, I said, you know, a little bit behind the scenes when when I had the opportunity to, to you know, talk with the speaker about tax policy. I did tell him, I don't know if, we, if you can cuss on this show, but I said that, <laughs> that appraisal caps were rhymes with it in the district I represent. Like, appraisal caps don't do much yeah. in, in the district I represent. Homestead exemptions has always been policy championed by Democrats. It's something we've always believed in. But we were willing to go along to help him with, with appraisal cap because we wanted the House to be strong. This was a House versus Senate. But I did tell him, look, at some point, 
you know, it's, it's homestead exemptions that really work for us in our communities in San Antonio. Well, the thing that, that I that I was thinking when I was looking at this is that homestead exemption, uh, just like the proportion, uh, proportional effect of it, you know, for working, you know, working class families, you know, if your home is 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 less ex- expensive or is appraised at less than, say, you know, someone in another part of town, that hundred thousand dollars or whatever the amount is, it's going to proportionally, it's going to have a much bigger impact on you. Two things for regular folks. Homestead exemptions are just a big fat coupon. So if you, if you go to a grocery store and use a coupon, that's what a homestead exemption is. I want a hundred K off, you know, yeah. the value of my house. The second thing to get a homestead exemption, you have to own a home and you have to live in Texas. The home has to be in Texas. So you can't have somebody who lives in, in, you know, Rhode Island, if you will, says they have a vacation home here in Texas, they're not going to get that tax break. So that's exclusively 100%, not for businesses, not for out-of-towners. That's for true Texans that live and declare that home their homestead. So it's very limited. And I think that, you know, that's where we should be dedicating. If we're going to give tax breaks, we should give it to people who generate the resources for us to be in a position to give tax breaks. So this this policy proposal should also include renters. Because all of the money that we're using to pay for this is mostly sales tax. Anybody who pays sales tax, that's what's creating the money we have in our bank. So we should give it to everyone who puts into the system. In this case, renters were left out. And then secondly, we should give it to homeowners first, not give it to corporations. I mean, think about a company that, that owns a strip mall somewhere here in La Cantera. They may, they may not be from Texas, but if you give them appraisal caps, then all of a sudden we're giving tax benefits to out-of-state real estate investment trusts that don't necessarily pay into the Texas tax system or live in Texas. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you've talked about, too, uh, as a big priority for, for Democrats in the legislature is uh, a pay raise for active teachers. Where, where does that stand now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't understand this. And, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm too into the weeds and, and, I'm, and maybe I'm, I'm looking at the forest too much. But if, 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 if people have not taken a, a look and have determined for themselves that our public education system is being literally taken hostage. Uh, and, and, and the folks that are holding our school system hostage, they are willing to give up the hostages. They're not trying to, to, to save public education. They believe by, by crippling and disrupting our public education system is the only way they're going to be able to sell vouchers and all these other private school schemes uh, to, to take money out of the school system. And so when teachers don't get a pay raise, you know, it's not because they don't deserve them. It's because Republicans think by not doing that, now we have some leverage to say, okay, Democrats, if you want a pay raise for teachers, then you're going to have to go along with us on a voucher scheme. That's what I think is happening. We should be calling that out every single day. I mean, we have more money. We have monopoly money in our Texas Treasury right now, more money than we have ever seen. And the fact that we can't use this money to give teachers a pay raise, and more importantly, there's no reason why we couldn't take new money and say, okay, Democrats, we understand you guys care about public education. We're going to fully fund it at 100%, give you what you want. But we have all this other money sitting in the treasury. Will you guys help us spend a little bit of that money on an idea we have with you know, uh, private school accounts or charter schools or this and that? I don't think Democrats are necessarily against trying something new when it comes to education because I think we all want, want what's best. What we don't want is folks to, to throw away the system that we have. And then to take that money and put it into a system that doesn't allow for everyone to participate. And then when the public school system falls apart, you know, folks turn a blind eye because that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that your feeling that this is when, when you look at the voucher uh, recommendations, that it's really coming from a place of 
we want to undermine, we, we want it to be the self-fulfilling prophecy of saying we're, we're going to undermine public education and then later say, see, see, we told you so. Well, the, the only other rationale would be that, that just, you know, Republican leadership just outright hates teachers and and public school kids because there, there is no other rationale. Mm -hmm. It's not a financial burden. We have the money. That's number one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, num number two, uh, you know, economically, we have not given teachers a pay raise and we have not put more money in schools since 2019. That's pre-COVID, yeah. right? So that that's before schools had to go out and try things new uh, because of COVID and, and, and the pandemic. This was before record-busting inflation. I mean, even in our own households. I mean, I, I'm the I'm the guy that eats the most in the house. That means I do the grocery shopping. When eggs were six dollars a dozen, yeah. I freaked out a little bit, <laughs> right? Because we eat a lot of eggs in my house. Imagine how many dozen of eggs schools buy, mm. right? Imagine how much gas you have to put in the school bus. Mm. And, and so we have not done anything for these schools since COVID or since record inflation. And we know now that we need fourteen hundred dollars more per kid to keep up with inflation and folks say no. And, 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 and I can't think of another reason why, but yet, you know, we'll go down and we'll take down the Houston independent school district and take it over saying they're failing. We're not talking about not giving them resources to help them succeed, but we're going to take them over. Now there's been a, a, a conservatorship in the Austin ISD saying they're not doing enough for special education children. Well, guess what? State's not sending special education money to help Austin ISD. Look at what's happening in Harlandale and in South San and other places. It's takeover, takeover, takeover. Very little in the solutions department. And, and so I, I'd ask Republicans, well, if it's not about money, then what is it? Because when it comes to vouchers, we're willing to, to do everything we can to, to facilitate a new idea. Even the governor campaigned all over the state uh, to, to make his point. Uh, and we, we seem to have money for vouchers. We seem to have money for doing things that are education related, but not related to public schools, but when it comes to public education, all of a sudden there's no interest from those in charge, not from the rank and file, and not even from moderate and rural Republicans who recognize that for them, the school district might be the biggest employer in their county. Well, towards that end, there are, there are school teachers who are Republicans, there are school teachers who are conservatives. So when, when we're talking about Republican leadership, is it the the arrogance of, of the safe seat of, of, of gerrymandering, knowing that they're not, it's not that, they are no threat of having those more moderate voices uh, vote against them. You know, that's, that's a really good question. I, you know, I, I know they 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 check their primary you know boxes right away. It's like okay, we we got to do something for guns. You know, we got to be you know anti LGBTQ. And they you know they did that this session. Uh, you know, we're gonna you know come back with a conservative agenda. Let's say you know vouchers. Uh, and, and maybe that's enough to get them through a Republican primary. I mean, a lot of these Republicans, they don't care about general elections. They care about surviving their primaries. And when you look at the sort of the extreme uh, makeup of the Republican Party now, you know, it, it's 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 a party that wouldn't elect Joe Strauss. It, it's a party that that probably gives Steve Allison a lot of heartburn. You know, you're not going to get too far on Alamo Heights and Terrell Hills, you know, with, with, a, with a radical agenda. I mean, these are common sense business folks that may be Republican for other reasons, not for these extreme, you know, wedge type issues that seem to be driving the Republican Party. But you're right. Uh, I think, you know, retired teachers, a lot of conservatives, active teachers, you know, they're not lockstep Democrats either. And so you make a good point. You had um, during the regular session, you had uh, an amendment, it was, it was a budget amendment uh, that would uh, not allow for, for vouchers. Um, 
<laughs> and you had, uh, I think it was more than 20 Republicans voted along with Democrats in favor of that, that amendment. And we're all expecting that Governor Abbott's going to call a special session later this year devoted to, to the voucher issue. How much confidence do you have that those Republicans who voted with Democrats on this issue earlier this year, that they'll stay with you on this? Or, you know, do you have some concern that they're going to buckle? They're probably going to face some political pressure between now and then. Sure. I mean, you know, a couple of things. I mean, they, those those Republicans are with us until they're not. Right. I mean, it's just obviously it's a hard enough job that I have to to try to keep Democrats on the same page. And even that's a challenge, you know, let alone try to figure out what Republicans are thinking. There will be a tremendous amount of pressure on Republicans, without a doubt. Uh, the regular session, there was a tremendous amount of pressure on them, you know, to, to, to do something on vouchers. And many of them held the line. We come back in a special session, let's say September, because it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to to bring lawmakers back to town when teachers are off from school and mm -hmm. can fill the gallery and raise a bunch of hell. So, you know, I, I know, you know the governor is not the sharpest tool in the toolbox, but I think he knows that. So we'll come back in the fall. Uh, filing for office <coughs> begins in November. So if you're a Republican and, and you don't tow the party line on vouchers in the month of September to October, do you find yourself with a political challenge in November? I think that is real. Uh, and, and then I, I also think, too, that, you know, there, there'll be some folks that, that feel like we have to do something, that there has to be some sort of carve out, whether there's a special education voucher or some limited voucher. You know, there'll be deal makers out there that, that want to try to accommodate leadership. that'll try to find a way to, to make some sort of accommodation. But at the end of the day, you know, the idea is that we should not be talking about alternative ideas of edu on educating our children until we address the primary problem, which is to make sure that schools have what they need now for the majority and overwhelming majority of Texas school children, teachers, faculty and staff. And if they want to get exper experimental on trying something new, I think we're all ears. But before we can get to to the dessert menu, we got to eat our vegetables and we got to work it. We got to focus on our fundamentals, which is our public school system. Do you think a voucher program is inevitable? I mean, is is Abbott going to be signing a bill no matter what? And if so, what's that going to look like? You know, I I, I I hope not. I do not think so. Uh, I think that the fact that he's still trying, uh, you know, recognizes that the sentiment is against him. Uh, all of that being said, that, that should something change, I think it'll be very telling as to, you know, when history looks back on that day, you know, who was on what side? Uh, and I think this has entirely been a, a an idea driven by the governor. Uh, I think there are some very deep financial ties, financial interests that are, are are making this their single issue and putting maximum pressure on Republicans, leadership and rank and file to be on board with this. Uh, but but I think, too, you know, I, in a conversation I had with a Republican leader uh, who's against vouchers said, hey, listen, you know, I, I told my 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 bishop back home, you don't want this government money. Because if you take the government money, you're going to take the government rules. And rather than learning about Jesus in school, you're going to be teaching the task test. You know, so you need to be very careful about what you ask for. Because with, with, with state dollars come state obligations. And, and that might not be what you want to do in your private school. And, and then, you know, and I, I think even some people that support vouchers are wondering what that might do to private education. And then there's a, you know, which is a whole nother, you know, you know, layer of the onion. Mm -hmm. In San Antonio, there's been a lot of talk about uh, HB 2127, the so-called uh, Death Star Bill, which um, in which the state preempts 
uh, local governments from passing rules and regulations. In San Antonio, I think there's been particular focus on uh, the idea that with the kind of summer heat we have, the city council wouldn't be in a position where they could they could uh, require that uh, construction workers get water breaks uh, because this this bill or this now this law will uh, would make that impossible or, or possibly make that impossible. Um, what do you what are your concerns about this bill and the effects that it? I mean, I think people are still. One of the things that people talk about is how the language is very vague. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty about the effects that it'll have. I mean, what do you anticipate? Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you you raised these questions. I mean, I, as you know, I lost a race for the Senate and I spent 2017 on the political bench. And uh, I realized for the first time, not being in Austin in 17 years, that people in my neighborhood and people not engaged in the legislative process, they have no idea what goes on up there. And I remember my colleagues used to call me all the time with the meltdown of the day and I'd have to stop them and say, hey, give me the background on that because I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and, and you think you're the center of the universe when you're in Austin and everybody knows what's going on. They don't. This Death Star bill is bad. And it was passed and championed by the person who made, you know, no secret about his disdain for local government and, and, and he, he, how he does not like mayors, does not like county judges. Uh, and, and the fact that no one's talking about the motive behind this proposal is, is embedded, you know, uh, from from a lawmaker who who could really care less about how local government functions and operates. And I think that how somebody gets elected, uh, having a disdain for the layer of government that is the closest to the ground, I don't understand. But there's a myriad of things you can't do. And essentially, they've said, well, Texas has become a crazy place to work. We got to have one set of rules. And if the legislature doesn't say you can do this, then cities can't do this. I think it's an affront to the city's ability to govern themselves, especially home rule cities like city of San Antonio. Mm -hmm. I also think it's a violates the San Antonio ethos of, you know, the no jerk policy that we have. Right. I mean, I think San Antonio sort of grown past the stage where, where we think we can be jerks to the people that we, we, we govern. And if the city of San Antonio wants to do the right thing on whether it's a prevailing wage, whether it's, uh, you know, allowing folks to organize and, and to form unions, uh, allow, you know, folks to, you know, have the freedom to, to take parental leave and paid leave, you know, I think San Antonio knows what's best for the folks that, that they govern. And if they mess up, well, there's a remedy for that. Those are local elections. And so the notion that we're going to be in 106 degree heat index today and, there are people outside working, cutting our grass and fixing our pipes uh, and picking up our trash that can't get a water break. I think it's just absolutely wrong. And while this gets fought out in the courtroom, and I hope it does, mm -hmm. I know the city of Houston's already taken the lead. I think as a community, we've got to come together and say, hey, you know, I, I think if, if you if you're a business that makes money off local government, then you should just adopt your own policy without us having to tell you. You know, if HEB depended on San Antonio city government contracts, they'd probably have a policy saying, hey, you know what? All of our employees get breaks after every four hours because I think they do. Mm -hmm. um, while, you know, we, we, while we want government to have the ability to do this, we shouldn't stop because they can't. We should now tell, you know, our local companies or construction companies and folks that are making money off of local government dollars to say, you know what? You should have this in your workplace policies already government shouldn't have to tell you to do this. This is this is part of the don't be a jerk policy. People ought to get paid well. They ought to have time off. They ought to have health care. They ought to get water breaks. Mm -hmm. And I think that we should demand that as a as a local community until we can get some resolution in courts. But this this proposal, bad idea. There's a lot 
there are a lot of other, you know, worse components in there, but obviously the one that's making the news right now are people working in sweltering heat right now, not not being able to have a legal a right to a water break, which is just fundamentally a dumbass idea. Right. So you mentioned the city of Houston. So they're challenging uh, 2127 in court. Uh, should San Antonio do the same? They seem to be kind of dithering on that question. You know, I, I think it's a it, it's a it's a strategies and tactics question because I think that you know, on the one hand, it might just be, hey, the more cities that sign on, it kind of shows a sign of support. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in litigation, I mean, you know, a procedural flaw can get you knocked out of court. And maybe, you know, cities are thinking, well, hey, if if that's not going so well, maybe we reserve the right to file a different cause of action in a different place under a different theory. Maybe there's a dispute as to what is the what is the best legal strategy to get there. So I, I don't know. I think the city of San Antonio obviously should do everything they can to represent our citizenry, to represent the values of our city. And I think that if you went out and took an Express News straw poll on do you think folks working in 106 degree heat should get a water break, I, I don't think it's going to be controversial. Yeah. So I think city the city should should heed that counsel and be very aggressive about providing a solution. But I think that, you know, preserving and reserving their tactical options to make sure they're making good strategic decisions. And, and I mean, is there sense in, say, passing? I know you're talking about just conveying, just conveying the message to these companies, do the right thing by your employees. But in the case of, uh, of something like that, should the city just go ahead and say, we're going to pass this and then we're going to let the chips fall where they may legally or, you know, or. I, I think it's another option. I, I think that if I was a member of the San Antonio City Council and somebody came to me about a multi-million dollar hemisphere hotel project or some mixed use development you know, they're going to lay out their pitch and then they're going to say, do you have any questions? Yeah, I have a question. Do you give your employees water breaks? Mm-hmm. That's my question. Mm-hmm. I think every city council member should be asking those questions. You know, you don't need an ordinance to ask questions. You, you, sure. you, you are elected to speak and you're elected to debate. You're elected to represent your districts. And I would encourage, just like you saw in the, in the, in the Wells Fargo scenario about folks who had concerns about the history of Wells Fargo, I think we should figure out what is a, what are the top 10 concerns for working families in this city? And anybody coming to make a buck off the city through hard-earned taxpayer dollars, you know, we need to know where they stand on these issues. I don't think there's anything controversial about that. And if it's done enough time, maybe you'd see leadership from the council's Hispanic chamber and in the greater chamber saying, you know what, we need to have a, a, a good corporate citizen policy. This is part of who we are as good corporate citizens. We've seen uh, over the past couple of years, uh, uh, it's been kind of what I would describe as kind of a red state crusade against the LGBT community. Um, I don't think this is new, but it seems to have been really intensified with, over the past couple of years. Uh, and in Texas, we've seen um, passage of a, of a bill that would restrict, uh, you know, drag shows. We've seen, uh, you know, the, the, the essentially banning uh, transgender kids from competing uh, in college sports in Texas. Um, also uh, banning g- the use of uh, uh, the access to gender affirming care. For, for transgender kids. Um, we probably devote a whole podcast to this issue, but I, from the outside, it looks like, like there is, there's just, there's been an, an intensification of uh, the, the Republican uh, fascination or, or preoccupation with this issue. 
why is that happening or is it happening? Is sure. that what you see happening? So at the expense of you all calling me Professor Martinez Fisher, I'm about to give a little college lecture here. Sure. I mean, <laughs> the, these ideas are not original thoughts. It's not like a, a Republican lawmaker woke up one morning and said, you know, I have this idea to ban gender affirming care. They are some very well-funded right-wing think tanks that they come up with model policies that advance their agenda, whether that's to help them get elected, whether that's to help them maintain power. And then they issue these model proposals in, in, in exclusive convenings where states come and attend kind of like, a, like Alec when it was the stand your ground law uh, about being able to shoot somebody to stand your ground. Same idea. A lot of these things are being led by some, some Trump extremists that are now out of a job because Trump's no longer president. And, and then the same folks that went out and hatched the idea on, on, on the Dobbs decision and overturning Roe, there are the same folks working on this. So they'll come to states and say, Hey, you know what? This is how you preserve your political power. Here's this, this polls tremendously well. You know, when, when, when you have Democrats out there defending the rights of the transgender and, and drag shows and this and that, you're going to have a three or four or five point advantage in a general election. A lot of this stuff is driven by political outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so they, they, they look at what sells the best in November and then they come back and turn it into policy. If you look at, you look at book bans, they were in Virginia. They were in Florida. They're now in Texas. You look at, at, at these bans on transgender competing in sports or, or gender affirming care. It is just traveling from state to state. If you look at voting rights, the attack on voting rights two years ago, you know, that wasn't an original idea from a Texas lawmaker. That was a national trend of how you, how you slow turnout. Remember the old days used to be two people got on the ballot. They put their ideas forward and voters decided who had the better idea and that's who gets elected. Today's scheme is we put two people forward. Uh, we figure out how to get my team to come out and vote the most. And then what can I do to make it harder for the other team to vote? And that's how you win. So persuasion is, is kind of persuasion lost. and oppression is the deal, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's how do you, how you dog whistle to the base yeah. and how you stop the other team from coming out? Well, I mean, 10 years ago, who, who was talking, uh, you know, uh, in politics, who was talking about transgender kids in sports at all? I mean, it was, and now we're being told it's a crisis yeah. of some kind. And uh, it, 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 like, it, it, it definitely feels that there are forces uh, that are, have decided this is a. How, how does this extremist fever break? You know, so I, I, it's a fantastic question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, watching these sort of Republicans fight each other is sort of also a, a little bit of a foreshadowing of, of what's to come. I mean, there's, there's clearly a division in the Republican Party between, you know, extreme uh, personalities and, and folks that may be more, you know, moderate and sort of are, are in this for, for business policies and tax policies and don't want to get caught up in the wedge. Uh, you know, and I think it's also, you know, Democrats, you know, doing more than getting pissed, right? And saying, hey, we, we, we got to turn this into action. Uh, and what, what do I mean by that? I mean, you, you know, you go flip the pages of our local Democratic Party and we see neighborhoods that don't have precinct chairs. That's not a, there, 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 there's no law that Republicans have saying that Democrats can't have precinct chairs. We've got to organize. Uh, you know, we, we've got to meet. We got to turn out. We got to knock on doors. If I don't have a primary opponent, Am I more likely to just stay at home and, and, and not organize the voters in, in the district I represent to turn out? I mean, we've got to do more than just point fingers at the other side. And, and so I think, it, you know, there, there is no there is no panacea silver bullet. But but obviously, you know, Republicans are very good about seeing around the corner and they wouldn't be attacking LGBTQ community. They wouldn't be coming after folks and making it harder for them to vote uh, if they didn't like what they saw. 
And I think the demography is very telling and younger folks coming into voting age population, they have a whole different worldview when it comes to, to, to how they identify with people who are LG, LGBTQ, uh, you know, our folks that are their friends that are, that are, you know, are, are, are transgender. It's a whole different generation out there, maybe more sympathetic and empathetic. Uh, and, uh, and, and for long-term Republican viability, that's probably not a good thing. Uh, couple of questions before we wrap things up. Um, you were part of the, the House uh, majority that voted to impeach uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton over uh, allegations that he's abused his office and, and bribery allegations. Um, if you could talk a little bit about your thought process as you made the decision. Um, I, I mean, I know there are probably a lot of things Ken Paxton's done that you've disagreed with, but, but nonetheless, it's still sure. a big decision when you decide to to impeach a statewide official. And then also kind of get your thoughts on where do you think what's going to happen in the Senate? You, you know, I, I happen to be in, included in a conversation when uh, when the whistleblowers, those that, that, that called out Paxton for his bad behavior, they were coming to talk to lawmakers about the need to get this settlement funded. And, and what they said to me was, listen, you have to draw a line in the sand of how you remove yourself from the conduct of the official and look at the look at look at this thing through the eyes of the victims who actually gave up everything they had to speak out on this issue. They're never going to get a job again, not in not in Republican circles. And, and and frankly, if if you don't compensate these people for for what they did for their courage, there's no other whistleblower that's ever going to come out in this state and point a finger at wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. So you need to be very careful about this and figure out a way to how do you deal with the punishment and how do you give justice to the victims? And, and that that stuck with me. And so throughout this entire debate, conversation was, okay, Ken Paxton wanted this paycheck of $3 million of taxpayer money to go out and pay for this settlement without him going under oath one time and answering a single question as to what was alleged to have occurred. Right? Like he said, okay, you know what? They, they hadn't even gotten close to proving the case. They just made allegations. Right. So, okay, we'll pay you $3 million. Let's just stop. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think he does have to answer. He does have to answer somewhere, you know, in a court of law and be deposed, tell his side of the story. And if he won't, well, then there's a public process to do that. And that's the impeachment. And that's what the House voted for, said Senate. You're the trier of fact. You're the judges. You're the jury. You go out there and do the trial. And we'll find out in September. But I think that's an important point is that is is, you know, Ken Paskin has to account for what he's alleged to have done somewhere. And if he won't do it in a courtroom, there's a public process that that that, that he'll have that opportunity. And of course, now he's saying he's not going to testify. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know where there's smoke, there's fire, they say. Yeah. Um, in 2021, it seemed like there was some some energy around the idea of expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, which is something that's been debated in Texas for a, you know for roughly a decade. We've got uh, it's been estimated that, that approximately a million uninsured Texans would be able to get health insurance if if Texas participated in this. There are like forty states now, including several red states that have that decided to expand Medicaid. It at least from the outside, it seemed quieter on that that front this year. Is the idea of Medicaid expansion just just dead in Texas? It can't be. We we can't give up on that. Let, let's. I mean, let's dial it back. Like there was a time when Texas would send a dollar of federal fuel taxes. You, know, you buy your gas, you pay state and federal taxes. So for every dollar Texas sent to Washington, they got back like ninety six cents, and a state like Massachusetts got a dollar five. Mm -hmm. 
Republicans found out about that. They wanted to secede from the union. This is like, <laughs> we're being robbed, right? Yeah. Look at Medicaid. Medicaid says, state, you put in a dollar, we're going to give you nine. I, every single one of you at this table, if I told you I'd make that deal with you, everybody would put their dollar on the table. So why they won't take the money is beyond me. Uh, and at the same time, all these red states around us are doing it. So it doesn't seem to be a political issue. Uh, you know, the Bible says we take care of the least of our brothers and sisters. So it's obviously not a, a, a moral issue. Right. Uh, and, and so what is it? My thought and my idea is um, every time Texas wants some money from the federal government, we ought to ask them where they are in Medicaid. So right now we just the Biden administration, thanks to President Biden and, and former Speaker Pelosi, Leader Schumer, we have the Chips and Science Act, billions of dollars for projects on the ground, for semiconductors and, and AI and, and uh, in the future of manufacturing. Texas wants some of that money. If I was the Secretary of Commerce would be like, where are you on Medicaid? Where are you on Medicaid? Where, where, where's your good neighbor program, right? Mm -hmm. and, we, and we ought to have our federal counterparts ask that question because they're dying to get their hands on that federal money for chips and science, but they won't take the federal money for healthcare. Well, I had the occasion, my job as, as Democrat leader, I, I, I do get the occasion to interact regularly with the Biden administration. And, and it's, 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 it's refreshing to know that there are folks who actually care about what happens in states, especially red states, because it's not like I can go call my Democratic U.S. Senator, you know, for a shout out. When I do that, it's usually like Cory Booker or Amy Klobuchar. You know, I have to adopt a Democratic senator to, 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 to lament. And I said to them, would you all please give some thought on Medicaid? We have, we have telemed now. So if you're in El Paso and, and, and you, you can't get seen by a doctor because you have no, you know, Medicaid coverage in El Paso, why can't you telemed with a doctor in Las Cruces, New Mexico? And why can't that Medicaid dollar that was slated for Texas, why couldn't that go to New Mexico? If you were on the East Texas mm -hmm. and, and they had Medicaid expansion in Louisiana or Oklahoma, what if you did a, what if you telemed and you talked to a doctor over there? And, you know, is there a way that we can do Medicaid expansion without letting Texas expand Medicaid? Because one person decides the destiny of that. Yeah. And, and we should be, we should be smarter than that. And, and, you know, What's been, what's been the response? We never thought of that. Like that's that's like, hey, let, let me let me noodle on that. I mean, but we we have to be thinking of ways. And I bet you, the sooner that dollar starts leaving, the the sooner the announcements are made, the Texas Medicaid dollars are going to other states that are stepping up. I bet you, Texas changes its mind. Yeah. Well, former uh, House Speaker Joe Strauss has said, you know. Call it something else. Give it another name if you want to. If for political reasons, you know, he's basically, and this is a message. I mean, I think he's trying to convey to to Republicans in the legislature. I mean, do what you have to do politically, but don't leave this federal money on the table. I'd say to my good friend Joe Stiles, when I want man, it's about time because there was a, there were a number of years where he he couldn't get there. Right, I mean, it was tough for him politically. It took him a while, yeah. In his later years, he 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 saw the vision, and I think we can call. I mean, yeah, we can call it anything. Uh, but again, the bottom line is this. State, you give me a dollar, I'll give you back nine. Uh, and we're talking about billions of dollars, and we're talking about a 90% guarantee for the continuation of the program that, it, that the federal government will always pay 90% of the cost. Who would not take that deal? Mm -hmm. Trey Martinez-Fisher, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Man, it's always good to be with you all, uh, and I hope to do it again. And for everyone listening, hope you're doing well. We'll be back with you next week. Take care.